Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. What images and emotions do the word betray bring to your mind this morning? When someone tells someone else, in a world of uncertainty, you can count on me. Now, when that promise gets broken, so does someone's heart. No one can love us like someone that we've given our heart to, but no one can wound us like that person either. This truth is the driving force behind country music. I've compiled a list of classic country titles, and most of them revolve around the pain of betrayal, and I I promise you I didn't make these up. We begin with that romantic melody, I flushed you from the toilets of my heart. Or you can sense this guy's suspicion when he asks, how come your dog don't bite nobody but me? And speaking of dogs, who can forget the classic I wouldn't take her to a dog fight because I'm afraid she might win. Or you can sense this poor guy's pain as he sings, you done tore out my heart and stomped that sucker flat. (laughs) Now, some songs have a note of bitterness, such as the song, you're the reason our kids are so ugly. And finally, maybe some people just need some time apart as the guy who's saying, how can I miss you if you won't go away? (laughs) Now, we will be spending the majority of our time on verse 18 with just a couple comments on the final verses. But before we begin to look at our text this morning, I left off last week in verse 17 where Jesus told us that if we understood the concept of servanthood, We will be happy if we do those sorts of things. I'd like to circle back there just for a minute. A Texas millionaire once said, I thought that money could buy me happiness, and I have been miserably disillusioned. Now, some people try to find happiness through things like fame, but fame does not guarantee happiness either. If it did, we would not hear so many of the world's famous people committing suicide. And as we read these verses, we notice at once that Christ's clue for finding happiness has two essential parts. The first part consists in knowing certain things, and the second part consists in undoing them. And obviously, both of those things are important. Knowing is important, as we have seen. You cannot do unless you know. You must begin with knowing. Nevertheless, knowing is not enough for many people know how to succeed, and yet they fail because they do not exercise that knowledge. So what is it that the one who would truly be happy should know? The first is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus alludes to this when he says, No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The problem that most of us have in finding happiness begins right there. For if we are honest, even as Christians, we must acknowledge that we frequently have that whole thing inverted. Jesus says that he is Lord and that we are his servants. But in actual fact, we act sometimes as if we are the Lord and he is our servant. 
Examine your prayer sometime and see if the greater part of your prayers does not consist of your telling Jesus of what he should do for you and the far lesser part of your asking him what we can do for him. We say that Jesus is Lord, but in practical terms, we want to make our own decisions, choose our own way of life, and set our own course of action. And when we do this, what we're actually doing is setting ourselves in the center of our spiritual universe. And the difficulty with that is that we are not adequate to be that center. The second truth we find in these verses is that Jesus took a servant role. He is Lord, the Lord of glory. Still, he divested himself of his lordly prerogatives in order to be made like us and to also serve us even to the point of death. So the first two truths that the man who would be truly happy must pertain to Christ, and they are this, that he, is, he has his position as Lord and also his role as a servant. Now these next truths pertain to us. To begin with, we are not greater than Jesus. You're thinking, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. But we acknowledge this verbally, but in actuality, we often deny it by our actions. Now, we say, of course, that we are not greater than Jesus, but we act out the opposite belief whenever we prefer our judgment to his judgment or think that we can manage life just fine without him. Thank you very much. Jesus reminds us once again of the true nature of things when he declares no, ma no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I want us to get that this morning because it all centers on that. We need to learn that we can do absolutely nothing of any type of consequence without him. The teaching in these verses is what is proper for Jesus is also proper for us. This is vital in answering the questions that truly matter in life. Such as, how shall I live? What shall I do with my life? What shall my values be? Where shall I place my energies? Now we find the answers to these questions by looking at Jesus to see how he lived. What he did with his life. What his values were. And where he placed his energies. In other words, he is our perfect example that is, we should all be ministers, for that is what the word minister actually means. It is, a, it is the Greek word diakonos, from which we get our English word deacon or servant. This is the clue for finding happiness. To begin with, in Matthew 20, which tells of the events just a day or two before this, we read of the mother of James and John going to Jesus with the request that when Jesus came to his kingdom, he would choose her two sons to sit closest to him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, obviously, these disciples wanted the most prominent of the positions. But Jesus had to reply to them that his, this was not the nature of his ministry. He spoke of the cup of which he was to drink and the baptism to which he was to be baptized with. Then he said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. 
Whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then he says this, Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now keep that in the back of your mind as we make our way through this. Verse 18, please. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Explaining that there was one in their midst who needed more than his feet washed, Jesus quoted Psalm 41, verse 9, where the reference is to David's betrayal by a man named Ahithophel. You may recall that story. When David's son Absalom launched a rebellion against him, Ahithophel, who was David's key advisor, defected and joined Absalom. Now, this caused a crushed David to lament. The guy who sat at my table, the one who ate chicken chimichangas with me, has kicked me. Your Bible may not say chicken chimichangas. Now, David was greatly concerned here, for it was true that Ahithophel did give very wise counsel. And so David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. God answered David's prayer, not by causing Ahithophel to give bad counsel to Absalom, for Ahithophel continued to speak wisely, but by, by causing his good counsel to be disregarded. The story of all that concludes by saying, When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been taken, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order, and then he hanged himself. So he died in his, in his town with his father's, in his father's sepulcher. Now what happened to David, though, was simply a picture of what would happen to the son of David, Jesus Christ. As Jesus also would be betrayed by one who ate bread with him, one who traveled alongside with him, and one who had even had his feet washed by him. Not only that, Ahithophel was also a picture of what would happen to Judas, for like Judas, he too eventually hanged himself because of the guilt of his betrayal. But there is another one who was also guilty of betrayal. Let's not forget that Peter also denied Jesus. But he didn't end up hanging from the limb of the tree because he looked to the one who hung on the tree of Calvary in his place. It is sobering. Because we could reason if one could have been among the company of the twelve for all of those years, during which he not only heard the Lord Jesus Christ speak, but also witnessed all of the miracles that he did. If one could have experienced all that and could still betray him, then it is certainly possible for a person to be in the company of God's people this morning, in a context of which the word of God is faithfully preached, and yet not actually be a child of God. And just like that, every one of us in here has a choice to make. For you see, you and I are Peter, Judas, and Ahithophel. We have all sinned in some way. The only question left us is, are we going to get hung up and say, I'm going to end it all? 
Are we going to look at him who hung on the tree and say, thank you for dying in my place? The subject of this passage is about sin. But also in particular, it's how Jesus Christ deals with those who sit at the Lord's Supper, at the communion table. Somebody may be saying, oh, great. I came here hoping for a lift. I came here hoping for some help with the problems in my life. And all I get is another tirade about sin. I should have known better. This is the church after all. I should have stayed home and watched wrestling. But just for a moment, consider the possibility that hearing what the Bible says about sin may be the very thing you actually need to fix your problems. The late psychologist Carl Menninger asked, whatever became of sin? Now, he and a number of other psychologists recently have had a very interesting thesis among them. They say there may be nothing more practical or more urgent to recover than the concept of original sin. Some of these guys are saying, here's the irony. In the name of helping people deal with their guilt, we got rid of the concept of sin. It was a way of trying to help the people deal with their guilt. But instead of the concept of sin, we have hostility, we have the failure to cope, we have addiction, we have alienation, and all those types of things. The irony is these psychologists are saying that the very effort to help people get rid of their guilt, that the concept of the concept of sin may now actually be hurting them instead. Why? Well, think about it. Because without a concept of sin, what can we do about the indelibility of guilt? Without a good concept of sin, an understanding of sin, how do we repent? How do we get forgiven? How can we possibly be cleansed? How about that? It seems like at least part of the psychological world has finally caught up with the Bible. Now, this passage is about sin, but it's also about a particular sin at the Lord's table. Now, forgive me, Leonardo, but for a moment, we're going to have to get rid of the Da Vinci painting in our minds. Because in that Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper, you have everybody sort of sitting upright on one side, sort of mugging for the camera. The point is, that's not the way that it was. The way these guys would have been sitting at the table is, well, they wouldn't have been sitting. They would have all been lying on the couches with their feet away from their table and their heads toward the table. What that means is when you would eat together back then, you were up close and personal. And so to eat at the Lord's table meant that he was close to you and you were close to him. You were extremely visible to him. It is a place of intimacy. That's the reason why Jesus, when he meets you at the table of communion, he notices things. Why is it that three times he brings up in this passage the subject of betrayal? If you read the entire chapter 13, you'll see that three times he drops the broadest hint, somebody at this table is a betrayer. Why does he keep bringing that up? Because when Jesus comes to meet us at the table... He will not overlook sin. He's going to say something about it. He's going to call us out on it. 
Therefore, every time we come to the communion table, it is right for us to say, Lord, is it me? Am I the betrayer? Who is it? Is it me? Now, I suggest that there are two very important truths in this passage that we have to use in order to examine ourselves as we come to the table a little later on this morning. The two truths are that sin is a betrayal of the Lord, but also that the Lord at his table loves to meet those betrayers. Sin is betraying the Lord. That's what this whole passage teaches. But on the other hand, when you get to the table, how does the Lord deal with those betrayers? He seeks to melt their hearts. On the one hand, this passage teaches that sin is a betrayal. And there's a lot of ways that the Bible talks about sin. And we're constantly getting different images or paradigms or models. And, well, here's one of them. What does the word betray actually mean? I would propose here today that you'll best understand it if you see it also has two aspects to it. The first aspect of the word betray literally means to deliver or to get, get something off of your hands. And the word betray shows up a lot of times in the Bible. And usually in the King Jimmy, it is translated to deliver. It really means to take something off of your hands or a way to get rid of your obligations. Remember Joseph? He was a snotty kid, and all his older brothers hated him, and so they betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. They got rid of him so they didn't have to listen to his stupid stories any longer. Delilah had Samson as a boyfriend, but she was continually trying to betray him into the hands of the Philistines. So to betray means to take someone and to remove their power over you, to do something to prevent that power or to do something that takes that power out. The Bible tells us that the essence of sin is what? Is the essence of sin the violation of the law and things like murder, rape, and robbery. Now, of course, those are sins, but the essence of sin is something much more subtle and more deep and much more profound. The essence of sin is to say to God, I don't need you and I don't want your hands upon my life. I want to get rid of the power that you have over me. I don't mind if you're around just as a teacher, but not as teacher and also Lord. The prodigal son. Do you remember the prodigal son parable? What does the young man do? He asks for his father for his wealth now. He says, all I want you to do is to give me what is mine and then leave me alone. We could say that sin is simply the determination to be independent of God. When Billy Joel said, go ahead with your own life and leave me alone, he was saying, get out of my life. This is my life. Now, when you say that to a person, that is rude. But if you say that to God, that, my friends, is the very essence of what sin is. Now, when I was wrestling with these very claims, I began to see, like Judah, something that really began to horrify me. You see, the closer I got to Christ and the more I looked to see what he was really like and what he taught, I began to realize, like Judas, that Jesus would not stay in my life as the role, in the role of just being a consultant. What do I mean? 
Jesus doesn't say, I'm just your teacher. He says, I will be your teacher, but also your Lord. Now, consulting is somebody, you can ask for their advice, and they give you a report, and you can do with it whatever you want. You can put it on the shelf, or you can follow it. You can put part of it on the shelf and follow part of it. And so I began to realize, just like Judas, that Jesus didn't want to be just a consultant. And not only that, he wouldn't stay in the role of a consultant, but instead, he wanted to be my CEO. Because when, when Jesus Christ comes to you to sit at the table, and what he says to Judas, what he's saying to you is, my friend, I want your glory, but you must obey You can't pick and choose between my commandments. You have to obey all of them, or you at least have to want to obey all of them. You must submit completely to my word and my spirit if we are ever going to achieve the glory that I want in your life. But what does the human heart say? Get away. I can't breathe. I need my options open. I need my freedom. I said earlier that sin is betrayal, and the first half of betrayal means I have to get this person's power off of my life somehow. I have to put this person in a condition where he no longer has any control over me. But the second half of betrayal is you're doing this to somebody to whom you owe that power. If you say to somebody, I don't, need, I don't need you, and I don't owe you nothing. Get out of my life. That's impolite if it's true that you don't need them or owe them anything. But if you do need them and you do owe them everything, then that is betrayal. Verse 19, please. Now, I tell you before it comes and when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, Who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, at first glance, verses 19 and 20 appear to be disconnected from the context. Yet upon further reflection, the connection, I think, becomes evident. We have to realize that the disciples would have been shocked by Jesus' prediction that one of them would betray him. They might have thought that having a traitor in their midst would destroy their credibility as a group and thus end their mission. Further, if the Lord was betrayed to his death, their hope for the immediate establishment of his earthly messianic kingdom would also die with him. But the Lord, dropping this statement into the middle of the references to Judas, reassured the 11 apostles that Judas' treachery would not nullify their commission. He was still going to send them out as his representatives to the world. Leon Morris gives us this great insight. He writes, Jesus was not caught off guard. He was not the deceived and helpless victim of unsuspected treachery. But instead, he was one sent by God to affect God's purpose going forward, calmly and unafraid, to do what God had planned for him to do. But I still can't get over this. It is still mind-blowing to me to think that after all Judas had seen and experienced, that he would still betray the Lord. 
Think about that this morning. Judas had a perfect example of all the Lord was doing and teaching during his three-year ministry. When the Lord said, blessed are the meek, Judas saw perfect meekness in him. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he saw the perfect peacemaker. When the Lord said, be holy as my Father in heaven is holy, he saw perfect holiness. And above all, Jesus was filled with the love of God. Judas saw all that and yet was unsaved. It is startling to think that Satan can actually come into the heart of a man in such a way, in such close contact with Jesus as Judas was. And more, he is still cunningly trying to do that this very day. Yet he can only get through a door opened on the inside. Every man and woman controls the door of his own life. Satan cannot get in without our help. Judas decided to follow Jesus. Judas heard Jesus teach. He went out two by two with the others, healing the sick and exercising demons. Judas did a lot of disciple kind of things. Yet, he is remembered solely for how his relationship with Christ ended. And what that teaches me is how a life, how a ministry, how a relationship ends is absolutely crucial to everything that goes before it. Let me bear my soul for a moment. The thing that most frightens and concerns me as a pastor is the possibility that people can come to Calvary Chapel Sunday after Sunday and still die without knowing Christ. I always want my ministry to have one main goal, and the basis of it is my love for those who hear me. But that goal is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I pray that you pray that I'll always be faithful in doing that. Well, Jesus' voice must have given him away because John describes him here as being troubled in spirit. Now, that description is important because troubled is the same word used in John 11:33 when Jesus said that he stood by Lazarus' grave and wept. He was troubled. It's also the same term in John 12, 27, as Jesus thought about the coming cross and the dread of that and said, now my heart is troubled. These verses tell us that Jesus was deeply disturbed. You know, sometimes as we look at Christ and his deity, we can forget about his humanity. And we can assume that he was unbothered by the types of things that bother us. We assume that he had resources that we did not have. Therefore, he was untroubled by life. But that is not the teaching of the word of God. The teaching of the scripture is that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet... He was without sin. What does that mean? So if we know discouragement, we may know that he knew discouragement. If we know distress, we may know that he knew distress. If we know sorrow, we may know that he knew sorrow. Here in the upper room during the last hours he had to spend with his disciples before his crucifixion, Jesus was increasingly troubled by all the things that were coming. And that began with a betrayal of Judas, which we will look at more next week. But as we finish up this morning, 
I read this week that uh, our skin is soft, like a tightly woven fabric. It appears porous from the outside with millions of tiny openings that ooze sweat. But you may be surprised to learn how effective a barrier our skin can be. For decades, medicine makers have tried to develop drugs that can be administered through the skin. Doctors call them transdermal drugs, like some pain-relieving sprays and nicotine and hormone patches. Pharmaceutical companies are racing to perfect a way to make these drugs more acceptable to our bodies. But for all of their work, they've only been able to find a handful of compounds that will actually go through our skin. However, if our skin is temporarily altered, medicines can penetrate it. Scientists have developed ointments that make the skin able to transmit drugs. They've also used very low electrical currents to propel the drugs through the skin. They've even invented tiny little patches about the size of a Band-Aid with tiny micro needles that pierce the top layers of the skin enough to get the drugs in, but not deep enough to be felt by our nerves. All of this to try to overcome the barrier of our skin. You're thinking, well, that was interesting. Why does it have to do with anything? You know, spiritually, we're the same. You see, our hearts also have barriers. That means we can be immersed in God's grace, but at times none of it actually permeates and penetrates into our hearts. Judas spent, Judas spent over three years up close to Jesus himself, but in the end, he handed Jesus over to be murdered for just 30 pieces of silver. That means that a child can be raised by godly parents, hearing Bible stories and having earnest prayers said over, there at, over them at home. They can faithfully attend church every Sunday, but it is possible they can grow up to be a prodigal who never returns. But sometimes the problem isn't the environment. Sometimes the problem is that we are impenetrable to the gospel. Just as the skin must be treated to transmit medication to our bodies, so our souls require the special work of God's grace before we can receive the life and healing that he wants to bring into our lives this morning. And what better way to do that than to spend some time meditating before we take the Lord's Supper this morning? Let us pray. Lord, it shames me to know that in my heart I have betrayed you countless times. You who are the friend who sticks closer to a brother. You who are the lover of my soul. You who gave your life for mine. I pray that you would speak to every heart here today and reveal yourself in whatever capacity we need you this morning. Whether that be for salvation, sanctification, or just the strength to carry on. We truly do need you. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Ask Pastor John to come up, this being the first.